Welcome to the Suffering Podcast. Each week, we walk you through how suffering is the way to sustainable success and the path to greatness. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. Visit thesufferingpodcast.com for complete details. Please subscribe and like to get our latest episodes as soon as they drop. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for exclusive content. Please comment. We may read your comments on future shows or even reach out to you for a future guest appearance. Let's embrace how suffering forges bonds that last forever, showing we are never alone. So get so ready, get ready, sit down, sit down, and strap it, strap it. Sit your ass down, down. Sit your ass down, down. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. Sit your ass down, down. Sit your ass down, down. Strap it, strap it. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. This is gonna hurt. It's time for the Suffering Podcast. Dented Development Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to assist first responders and their families repair dents caused by suffering. Help us support the ones who take care of us selflessly. Dented things can still operate, but may not be as pretty as they once were. Make a difference and go to DentedDevelopmentProject.com to get involved today. Our heroes need our help. All new Suffering Podcast gear is here. The show depends heavily on our supporters to get the word out. Let people know that suffering is a team sport and no one is alone in their struggles. Wearing the Suffering Podcast merchandise accomplishes that goal. Check out our store at thesufferingpodcast.com or check our show notes for the link. Your support and love means everything to us. Wandering in the darkness is a lonely, anxious, and disorienting experience. Trying to find your way with no signs, no waypoints, and nothing to give you guidance makes the likelihood of reaching your goals next to impossible. The poke and hope, off-the-cuff theory rarely works, and only works rarely by luck and chance. Do you really want to gamble yourself on the statistics of luck and chance? There are those that put in the work, to guide us through the wilderness, to assist us in the navigation of unsteady waters. Their experience makes the darkness seem less dark. They make the path seem a little straighter. They make the difficult seem possible. Sometimes we need to stand on the shoulders of giants to achieve the goals we set for ourselves. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felace, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we sit down with Daniel Jensen to discuss the suffering of Code 3 Outreach. Daniel spent a long time assisting first responders with the use of medical cannabis for the benefit of overcoming the traumas that our heroes have to deal with every day. Daniel, thanks so much for traveling so far to come and sit with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, before we get into anything else, let's get into this week's social media question. It comes from Mary Ellen. This was an interesting one that I grabbed off of the internet because... It seems like 
PTSD is a catch-all for every bit of trauma in your life. So I'm very interested in everybody else's definitions of what they believe PTSD is. And Mary Ellen writes, what is your definition of PTSD? So Dan, I'm going to go to you first and I want to find out what you think it is. The first thing I'm going to say is whenever I go out and speak at any engagements or I'm speaking on, on behalf of PTSD with first responders, veterans, I don't even like to use the word PTSD. I, I always prefer to call it PTS because I believe when I first got into this space and take that very minimalistic mandatory training when you're going for all your certifications, I always saw PTSD as it's a disorder. That's what I was going to say. The D is a disorder. It's really not a disorder. Yeah, it's not. Not at all. If I were to if I were to tear my shoulder, that's not a uh, injured shoulder disorder. Yeah, that's an injury. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's and that's what that's exactly what PTS is. When I started initially learning about all, all this, you know, growing up, I thought PTSD was something completely different than what it truly is. This is something that that needs to be spoken about. And brought into light because right now, one of the most dangerous aspects of PTSD or PTS in first responders is there's a misconception to it. There's not enough awareness being brought into it. I was always raised with the, you know, the heavy masculine burden that chicks dig scars. The, mm -hmm. ma the macho male syndrome. Right. So if you, if you get a scar on your arm and you can show that off in school when you're a kid, right? Chicks yeah. dig scars. Chicks dig scars. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, this is a scar, but it's a, unfortunately it's a scar that you can't see. Mm -hmm. Mike, we've dealt with PTSD for so, or there you go. See, I have to change my lexicon on that. We've dealt with, <laughs> and I will, I will. Yeah, I used hey, to say commit what, suicide I, I all still, the time and I've changed that. I still that. do it. You know, we, we should just change it now. We'll just change it to like PTSI, you know, post-traumatic stress injury. Yeah. they actually, it really is an injury. They actually, uh, I believe it was about six or seven years ago that they actually have changed the wording of it in all the, the medical documentation and study references that it is now only post-traumatic stress. We've dealt with post-traumatic stress so much in what we've done, Mike. Over your experience, what do you think the most apt definition of it is? I think post-traumatic stress is more of a mental injury. It's really a, a brain injury. It's something wrong in your brain. It's not, it's not something that you could see. It's not a physical injury. You know, it's something that is really unto yourself. You're the only one that knows your feelings. You know, you're the only one that knows what you feel on the inside. Like you said, I mean, you, you get a cut, you get a scar. People know you have a scar. You break your arm, you walk around with a cast, people know you have a cast. And you can get an x-ray to see exactly what's broken. Yeah. You can't x-ray your brain. Well, they can. They can. They can. But it's a, it's a very few, small portion of doctors that are actually going to do an MRI or, or a CAT scan or something to, yep. to see the changes. But that's mm -hmm. like CTE with concussions. They can't tell you you have CTE until you die. Yeah, they have to do the autopsy. Then they do it. the autopsy on your brain and everything, and then they say you got CTE. I get really aggravated when people use it as a catch-all. Like, it really hurts because I feel a lot of these things diminish the injury that I have, mm -hmm. that I went through, that Mike has gone through, that you have gone through. But my apt definition, the one that I really hold to, is PTSD is knowing you're going to die, accepting it, and then not dying, and having to deal with the consequences afterwards. Well, what's interesting with that is, with the amount of time I've listened to your podcast and, your, and knowing your stories, it seems like your definition of it 
is very closely related to the more violent side of PTSD. Yes, I, I would I would have to say that yeah. because it's my experience. Yeah, that's my so, experience. A, a, and you know, we're talking about what our definitions of PTSD are. PTS are. There you go. Yeah, yeah, do it all the time. We'll change it by the end of the show. Don't we worry will. about it. Absolutely. We'll get there. Work in progress. I'm going to drop that D. Yeah. <laughs> Just like you dropped the D on your lip. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> but okay. So it was nice seeing you. Yeah. And uh, it's my time to go. Anyway. It's real funny, though, that my definition, and I know for a fact that you can accumulate trauma over time, and that can really weigh on you in a lot of different ways. But I'm talking about the rapid onset of PTSD. One day you have it, and one day you don't. Now, yep, yep. But it, it could be incident specific, correct? Or could be an accumulation of incidents to some extent, because the accumulation of things that I, I I can only speak for myself. The accumulation of things that I've seen over my career, I'm sure they played some part in it. But then there was that shooting that sort of put you over the edge, over my edge, and it filled my glass. To the point where it couldn't well, take I, I think every first responder has some sort of PTS. Yes. I, because, I, I mean, we see things on a daily basis that people shouldn't see in a lifetime. Now, and, and that could not be a, any more true of a statement, but how scary is it to know that that's an actual fact? And it was even scarier is the fact that the people in those positions don't know it yet. Yeah. You, you, know, you know, it's crazy. Just this past week, and I was telling Kevin, I grew up with these, these two brothers. They were, they were twins. They're my age of 55. Fuck you, Kev, I'm old. <laughs> the one brother went to work one day, had a massive heart attack. I happen to be just driving by, and I see the ambulance is where he works, and then I see the brothers come running up. They take the guy out. They're doing CPR on him. His face was almost purple. Mm -hmm. To me, that is part of what we used to do back in the day. You know, we've seen people like that. Yep. But to these two brothers, especially his twin brother... That's got to cause some kind of PTSD. You know? PTS, I'm es sorry. Especially, yeah, we'll, like I said, we'll get there. We'll get there. there. We'll get there. <laughs> but uh, it's a twin, somebody who has the same or very similar genetic makeup to you just died knowing that, hey, guess what? You're next, buddy. <laughs> so I said, you know, and I've, I've been staying on top of him because I know he's going to go for that roller coaster ride. Now. I hear you that, stay on top of guys. <laughs> that would be a very, very interesting case to follow. Yeah, I would was. love to see how two people that are identical – in almost every possible way, see the same situation. How do they handle it differently? It's it's got to be tough losing a brother anyway, yeah. or any family member. We feel it to some extent, but a twin. I mean, that's I I feel it when somebody, a law enforcement brother or sister dies. I feel it. I feel it. Even okay. if I didn't know them, we still had that connection. But anyway, Mary Ellen, thank you very much for your question. Keep sending them in. We'll try to get them on the air. We're here to talk about the suffering of Code 3 Outreach, and Daniel Jensen here is the representative and the owner and the founder of Code 3 Outreach. I'd like you to tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Of course. So I got into fire and EMS right out of high school. How old are you, by the way? I am 33. I'll be 34 in April. Oh, you millennials. Fuck, I'm, <laughs> I'm the oldest one. Oh, in here. Oh, I'm the oldest one in here again. Okay. <laughs> there is no millennial here <laughs> at all. Hell no. I grew up the right way. I grew up knowing you had to be in when the streetlights came on and not have my ass plopped in front of a computer or a video screen all day. And if you didn't get home in time, you got your ass beat with a wooden spoon. Well, there's a common misconception, just like PTS. 
Okay. So I had a good friend of mine is also a millennial mm-hmm. and he is like you where he hates that term. Yep. He understands that term where it's coming from. But unfortunately in this society, you take the worst of the worst, the lowest common denominator of a group of people, and that's how you identify them. So there are people your age who are lazy, who are entitled. Yep. There are people Mike's age who are in wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. Or, <laughs> there are people that are our age that are also lazy and entitled. Yep. But we tend, I know Mike and I tend not to look at them because we look at people more like ourselves, mm-hmm. where you unfortunately are stuck with this, this stigma to you, yes. which is really bad. See, I always say I'm 55. I earned lazy. <laughs> you know, if I want to be lazy, I'm going to be lazy. <laughs> yep. Yep. So fire and EMS, was that, was that always your goal in high school? I never really knew what my goal in high school was. Does um, anybody in high school? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, growing up, uh, I grew up in Jackson. And my mom was an EMT and she had this, uh, little blue light, um, <laughs> that everybody threw on their dashboard because it, for, you know, responding to the, the calls or to the station. And I used to sit in her, in her car and I used to just play with that thing all the time. And I always remembered that with that blue light. Is that how you got into great adventure faster? Yes. <laughs> Being yeah, down in Jackson, you put the blue light on you, yep. you cut through the lines and get right in the parking lot. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Safari access as well. That's amazing. That's, that's, not, that's not bad. That's Those not elephants bad. love that blue light when you go into it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Monkeys trying to grab it and throw it off. It's a cool little thing for a kid. I remember when my kids were young, we put that, I put them in the, in the police car mm-hmm. and let them work the sirens and everything. Just growing up, seeing all these like police shows and everything where the de- detectives take the, the red light and put it on the roof of the car. Do you remember, um, police squad, Frank Drebin. Yeah. Frank Drebin. Yeah. Do you remember, um, rescue 911 with oh, yeah, uh, sure. William, Sh- William yeah. Shatner? I grew up watching that. Oh yeah. That, show. that was an amazing show. I loved it. See, I'm so old. I used to watch Adam 12 and emergency. Now you could only get them on like the me channel. I mean, it, it, that was like my introduction to law enforcement chips. Mm-hmm. Chip, oh, I watch chips. And you just oh, watch it Eric because you like the tight pants, man. That's, that's and just a, a little more credit toward the millennial thing. I'm sorry if you know Rescue 911. My millennial card's pulled right there. <laughs> <laughs> real, so, real stories of the Highway Patrol. Yeah, you that's wa- back in the day. You watched your mother in this life of service. Yes, and yeah. was what something other than the blue light? Did something other than that attract you to it? So I, I used to hear the pager go off all the time and see her and uh, her good friend Nancy at the time. They would just run out the door and it, it was surreal to to see like, oh my God, my mom is in a sense like a superhero. It's the call into action. Yeah. You know, that, that beeper goes off and they're running out the door to go help someone. Exactly. So, I, I mean, as I was growing up, my mom uh, eventually got out of EMS, went into being a nurse. And I always figured that I wanted to be a nurse, but I wanted to work in trauma because I was I was always very drawn to that. Even possibly going to flight medic possibilities. But unfortunately, I was too tall for to meet those qualifications. Yeah, you barely fit in the basement down here. I was watching you duck <laughs> underneath the, the... I have never had that problem in my life. <laughs> You know, there's always that attraction to the medical field. And then when I was 17, my senior year, yeah, senior year of high school, a couple of friends were on the first aid squad and I didn't know much about it. And I figured, you know what, what the hell I'll, I'll do that. And I'll see what it's like. And I fell in love with it. You know, getting to play with sirens, <laughs> radios, everybody's trying to see like what's going on. Well, that's how they attract you in there. That, but what they're, yes. what they're doing 
It's a really good thing, too, because the training that you get from a first aid squad, if you take that seriously, you're all of a sudden getting a value-added service to put on your resume. Mm-hmm. And it's really going to help you down the line. And that, was, and that was one of my thought processes, too. I want to be a nurse. Mm-hmm. This is perfect. So right. having your resume for that. Also growing up, so my, my parents got divorced when I was at a very young age. But one of the earliest memories I have is stepping into uh, fire boots <laughs> in my parents' closet. The big ones that rolled up all the way like the thigh, like uh, mm-hmm. like backdraft. And that always stuck with me. And I remember going to the firehouse a couple of times. My my memory, unfortunately, has really been affected by the PTS. P- pulling back a lot of memories is difficult sometimes. But, you know, I do have a few memories of being around the fire department and everything. Was your father a fireman? He was, yes. Yeah. He was a firefighter. My uncle, um, who still is, actually. I'd say a, a good portion of my family actually was. And my grandfather was a chief. Um, so I'm third generation and I'm the only one carrying that in, in this generation. But that legacy is, you know, there's a portion of it. I know Mike, you had, was it your uncle? My uncle, yeah. Your uncle was the cop. And when he saw the same way you put on those fire boots, you, you saw this guy coming in and he was squared away. He was Port Authority, correct? Yeah. See my memory? Yeah, Captain my memory's Port Authority. Not too bad. Nice. Well, can you listen to my episode all the time? <laughs> yeah, I listen to your episode. <laughs> it's that impression that we make on the youth, which was my favorite part of the job. I believe that was Mike's favorite part of the job. Yeah. You know, the way you're, the way the little kids look at you when you're squared away in your uniform, your shoes are shined and they're looking at your duty rig. You do feel like a superhero. Little side note to So what you're saying, my girlfriend and I, I have obviously have made a lot of big plans for our future. And we, we've talked about, you know, the possibility of having kids and all that. It wasn't up until about six months ago that I really made the decision to say, I want to get back into the fire department. And she's a little bothered by that because she knows obviously what I'm dealing with. And she just wants to make sure that I'm always safe and that I'm always able to come home. So I understand her concern with that, but she also knows that this is a part of me that can't leave and it will never leave. I'm always going to have that firefighter tradition running through my veins, especially when it's like a calling to you. Yeah. Once you get bitten by that bug, it's, it's there. You know, Kevin and I both retired from traumatic injury or Mm -hmm. traumatic situations. I went to work one night, got involved in a traumatic incident and never went back again. You know, and, and there was a long time where I like yearned. Well, you have to fight. Put that uniform back on again. You have to fight in order to find something new. But it's a mistake that all first responders make. All first responders see their primary identity as what they do. All right. And that is, that's not a healthy thing. Well, that's why so many people stay on so long. Right. You know, you could retire at 25 or 30 years. You see guys with 34, 35 years because that's their identity now. Correct. They're like Joe the cop. You know, once you retire, you're just Joe. I, I talk to people about having a, a primary identity higher than what you do, because yeah. eventually we all have an expiration date on our careers. Every single one of us does. Yep. And when that ends, if, you, if that is your primary identity, identity, now all of a sudden you walk out the door and go, what the fuck do I do? Man. I don't know anymore. And that's a tough so, adjustment. Yeah. So when you, were, when you were talking about the kids and, you know, seeing that, that's one of the factors I told her is for me going back because I want to, I want obviously a son or my daughter to grow up 
and be in the parades and sit behind the wheel of that truck on, on, on you know, dad's lap and wave to everybody. Yeah. And that right there is just going to just put that into their DNA and then they're going to grow up and they're going to be able to help people. You know, and that's you, what I want. You see that in, like in parades all the time. Fire departments are great with that. Oh yeah. You know, you, you see like, you know, the, the ambulance go by and the police cars go by fire trucks go by. There's all family on the fire trucks. Yep. There, there's kids hanging out the back windows, throwing candy to people. <laughs> and everything. I mean, fire department is like a real family business. It really is. It, it is. And, um, you know, my, my, I always say my family's fire department is in, um, is South River. That's where, you know, they're all based out of. I know you've been one of the strongest supporters of our show. We connected through a mutual friend. Yep. You've listened to several different episodes. With your background, and especially what you, what you do right now in the treatment of PTS, tell us your thoughts on the show. I think this show is incredible. Cut that right there. Yeah. Print that. That's going to be our new commercial. <laughs> Give him his money now. <laughs> I listened to, when, it, when the podcast was first brought to my attention, I listened to a couple of episodes and I was like, wow, you know, this is really interesting. It's cool that people have an outlet to really talk about some crazy shit in their lives that yep. people just need to know about. What was even more amazing, and I called you right after I listened to yours because mm -hmm. I didn't, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't able to find yours for some reason. And... I can tell you right. Well, we just re-aired it just in case anybody was listening. But <laughs> yep. um, I remember where I was sitting. I was, I was actually at work, and I just pulled into my parking lot, and you called me. Yep, I, I heard your story that night. I went and listened to yours. It really hit me that that night, like right in the feels, to just hear what other people are going through. Because when we go out to these different events or any of the speaking engagements, people give you kind of like a general overview of what they're going through. And you can only you can only appreciate that so much. Now when there's an outlet to really like get into the just the the shit of it. People, people are very topical. They're very surface yeah. when they when they tell you because they're trying not to show that they have so much damage. Yep. You know this stuff damages you, and they want to say, well, you know, I, you know, I was affected by it, but they don't want to tell you how you were affected by it. You know, and they don't want to talk about the sleepless nights. They don't want to talk about all the crap, the really, really bad stuff. Yeah. Because they're trying to present themselves a certain way. Well, we talked about it before, macho male syndrome. Right. You well, know, nobody wants to show you're hurting inside. Right. And this this stuff makes you hurt. And so they do stay very topical, and I do understand that. Mm -hmm. That conversation we had in the when I was in the car, I, I called Mike immediately afterwards because you had said something to me that it, you, you have those those moments when you do anything like this mm -hmm. where you're like, wow, that was a really good get. Yep. And it was a really – it made you feel good where you said, I've never really told the extent of my story. Yeah. And I'd like to tell it. Now, we all have a greatest suffering story. Mm -hmm. So why don't we get into yours? Oof. Okay, let's get into it. I don't know when my PTS started. And big credit for me because I dropped a D on that one. Yeah, that was nice. There we go. I just did it once too. <laughs> we'll get, get, we'll get there. We'll get there. We're working it. We'll get a tally sheet going. <laughs> D free now. <laughs> I, I, I don't really know when all of it started. Like I said, it, it's a accumulation of things yeah but sometimes there's one thing at the end that really the pts bottles up mm -hmm. and then one thing like we call it fill in the glass yeah 
keep filling that glass. Sooner or later, if you don't take a, a sip out of that glass, it's going to spill over. Mm-hmm. And that's that's when I think PTS really kicks in when that glass starts spilling over. Yeah. I remember joining my local first aid squad at the time when I was 17. And there were restrictions on certain calls that you were allowed to go on. Do you guys call them pesavals up here? Pes- Psychiatric? Uh, no, we just call them... Psychovals. Psych Okay. So if I just randomly say Pesaval, just know it means psychiatric. So I remember going on a few calls, getting really addicted to it, going to um, fender benders, nothing, nothing too serious. Uh, Maybe some broken bones here and there. As a 17 year old kid, it must be a little bit intoxicating when you show up at a scene and you are the state, you're the guy, yeah. the, the scared person's looking at you for help. Yep. You're the one jumping out of the back of the truck with all this equipment on, you know, just ready to help somebody in their worst time of need. And you, it, it makes you feel amazing. Right. You know, you get addicted to that really, really quick. Then I remember turning 18 and everything's full. Um, there's no restrictions on anything. Uh, I graduated the EMS Academy June of 2005. On my birthday, the day I turned 18 was my first day on a paid truck. And on while, a paid, wait, hang on a second. So you weren't a volunteer at 18. You were a paid EMS? I did both because I had such a love for what I was doing. I, deso- I decided to make a career out of it. That's huge. Work as at much 18? as I could. And then uh, even when I was off, I'm still going to answer that pager. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Now I, to get on that young and be yep. accepted in there. It, 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 it was addicting. It to really have, was. To have that outlook at 18 years now, old. Now, thinking back in your mindset at 18, do you think you were mentally prepared to see what you were about to see? Hell no. No, 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 no. Not at all. We talked about that with uh, our good friend, Eric Engelhardt, who runs the EMS in Lynnhurst. And one of the things I asked him, because I still remember that feeling, the first time you saw a dead body. That feeling, like now I'm not talking about a funeral home, yeah, body. I'm talking about a fresh one. You know what's you know what's funny about that? I don't remember it. See, I remember every little detail. I could tell you the address. I think because I saw as much as I did, it, it it's gone. I remember my first CPR. My first CPR was when I was doing my clinicals for my EMT in the old hospital. Can't say, I'm not going to say where it is. Yeah, no, 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 no. We, we don't want to get sued. Yeah, no. I remember working in the ICU and I saw my very first code. I remember the nurse saying, okay, come on, you're going to learn something. Did my first compressions. Felt the crack. Yeah. Yeah. All cracked the rib or two. If anybody listening ever runs a CPR course, can you start telling people that you, when you do CPR, you're going to crack a sternum and some ribs and just be prepared for that unbelievably cringy moment that's coming. The, uh, what, what was I just watching the other day? I was, it was one of those TV versions of CPR. Mm-hmm. And what's the first thing that they did? First of all, there was an obstruction in the throat, which you don't do, you don't do air when there's obstruction. You got to clear the airway, right? Yep. Guy puts his mouth right over it. And I'm, I'm standing there with my kids and I go, okay, I'm going to explain something to you. Number one, never put your lips on anybody. Number two. Unless she's good looking. <laughs> <laughs> and number two, somebody with a throat obstruction, if you happen to clear it for whatever reason, guess where all that stuff's coming? It's coming directly into your mouth. Yep. <laughs> so Never happened to me. Thank God. No, nah, never happened to me. I never got close enough. Nope. 
Never, never do that. Too bad we couldn't throw like a trach in, you know, cut his throat open, shove a pen in there and here. You really want to, you want to make the next million dollars, the next million dollar idea. I'm going to give it out for free. So the, the little, uh, oral Annie doll. No, was it? No, I'm sorry. That's not what it is. (laughs) Resuscit, resuscit. That's exactly (laughs) what we called it. We all know it. Resuscit Annie. Well, Kevin has a little anal Annie in the back room. (laughs) (laughs) And think of back now when I was a kid, you can't have them around right now. My lips aren't going anywhere near it, but, um, cause you know, instructor, some instructor had their way, but they need to do the rib break. They also need to put like a new smell in there because Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, they shit their pants. Yeah. Or they piss themselves, and then they don't smell good, or they haven't showered, so they need to put a little smell vision in there. Yeah, yep. just to give it reality. And again, this is all we, we. Yes, we are joking about this, but it is all to prepare that eighteen, seventeen, or eighteen-year-old mind for what they're about to see. Yep. Because I've seen people freeze, scratch and sniff, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, no! <laughs> I can't believe I, I can't believe I actually called it <laughs> the little, the oral anal, Annie. little oral Annie with twelve different points. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, let's get the shit smell. And yeah, then you right. scratch it, and here comes the shit smell. Yeah, well, you just sprinkle a little stuff over it. <laughs> you're you're seeing this code in the hospital. I was the one to initially start the compressions and everything, and I remember it was. I, I know she was 89. I remember that. Unbelievably, we got her back. I remember just they they got her stabilized. She was in a very dark room all by herself. We were all at the desk and I was learning, you know, different things here and there. So this was, I think, my second to last day of my clinicals at that point. I remembered ending that shift and actually sitting next next to her in the bed because she didn't have any, any family around her. And that, that just broke my heart. Yeah. And I stayed with her for, I want to say, probably about three or four hours before I really, like, had to get home to get to work. Now, could you stare her in the eyes after bearing her chest? What's that? <laughs> could you look her in the eyes after you had to bear her chest? No. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Avert your eyes. So, I remember, uh, you know, sit, sitting there with her, and I came back the next day for my clinicals, and she was still there, still no family. Now, was she coherent at this point, or was she no, just... No, no, un- completely unresponsive. But, I mean, a technical CPR save is 24 hours. Right. Yeah. So, I remember that, obviously, she survived 24 hours, but I don't know if she ever got out of the hospital. But thinking of what, when you said asking about, like, remembering your first dead body, it's weird that I can remember my first code, but I can't. Re- I really can't remember my first dead body. And the PTS affects the memory so so much so that your mind purposely tries to shut out certain things. You block certain things out. Yes. After you go through this code, you're still able to continue. You still ride the bus. Fine. You're, you're I, had, I, I had, I had, I think I may have been a little bit bothered, but my mom growing up was, was so supportive and listened to me on everything. So I think that she really helped me through that. But honestly, at that, I was fine. It's gotta be scary for your mother too. You know, she's seen all this stuff. Now her son yeah. is getting involved in all this stuff, knowing that it's going to damage you somewhat. Even yeah. if you're the strongest individual in the world, unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath, yep, it's going to affect you. So, yeah. You know, the, the problem, in, and we talked about this quite a few times, the, the problem in the first responder field is you're going to that house, you're doing CPR. You put them in the ambulance. They're off to the hospital. You have to go to the next call after that. 
Yep. You know, so you have to, you have to shut that down, shake it off, do whatever you got to do mm-hmm. and move on to the next call. And that's where we talk about filling the glass again. Mm-hmm. I remember right before I, ju- I jumped on, on uh career status, I remember that a call went off for a gunshot to the head. If I remember correctly, I didn't make the truck, but I was asked to go to the scene and, and meet them because they needed manpower. Guy was on the second floor of the house. And guaranteed he's 300 pounds. Yeah. No, he wasn't. Wow. He wasn't. Usually they're always 300 pounds when they're on the second floor. Yeah. I always said that, you know, you should have a weight limit for living on the second floor. Yeah. yeah. And be a little courteous <laughs> for those of you out there. Be, be courteous. If, if you're going to, di- was it a self-inflicted gunshot wound? Yes. All right. So if you're going to do that, have a little bit of courtesy and just get down to this first floor. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Like, <laughs> think of somebody else. Think of somebody else. <laughs> Wrap yourself in a shower. Curtain. How many times you put people on a Reeves and you're bouncing them down the stairs? Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's crazy. So I, I remember getting to that scene and I, and I walked up to the house. I just realized, holy shit, this is my friend's, my friend's house. Oh no. Yeah. And we knew by the dispatch, cause they said the age, it, I knew it wasn't my friend at the time. We were both in high school together. Now I remember standing at the corner. It, it was a house that was on the corner. I had walked closer to the house, but I think I backed up when I, when I knew that happened, I didn't get into the house. I remember that by the time I got to the corner, they already had him in the Reeves and were bringing him out. So there, there was no need for me to, to, to be there anymore, obviously. For people listening, let me explain what a Reeves splint is. Yeah. A Re- so it's it's like a uh, if you flexible to, stretcher, a, maybe. A flexible stretcher. It's got these hard, uh, harder uh, like bone-like material in there. And it's just, it's, it's something that it's easy to roll a body onto and lift it up with two-man carry. Oh, kind of like what you see on the football field when they have to take somebody off really quick or yes. like on, on a soccer game or something. Yes. Because you can't get a stretcher downstairs. Correct. No. So. Correct. And the, the sometimes you can't get a board through because this is flexible. You can move it a little bit. I remember seeing him, my friend's father, and I didn't even go back to the, to the, the station after that. This was actually probably six or seven blocks from where I lived at the time. And I just drove back home, ran up the stairs. And I didn't make it to the top of the stairs. I broke down crying. My mom was cooking at the time. It's funny that we actually just talked about this too. And she doesn't remember it. You know, obviously I do very vividly. Um, I remember breaking down the stairs. Because was this your friend's father? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Telling her what happened. And that always stuck with me. And I, I'm going to say that that was probably like the seed of PTS going in. You know, the good thing about being so young because we just we just saw this. There was an officer-involved shooting in one of the surrounding areas here. And he was so young that his glass hadn't had a chance to fill up to the top yet. Mm-hmm. And what I have seen, and again, this is just my opinion, when you see these ultra-traumatic incidences, that the ones that really stick in your head, yep. the younger you are, the better. Because when you hit like that between 10 and 15-year mark, mm-hmm. you've seen so much crap. And it's just compiling over time over time that one incident is likely to put you over the edge but when you're young you don't have a whole lot in your glass so you're able to absorb it and maybe and maybe combat it a little bit Mm -hmm. so the next time something comes you're a little bit more prepared yeah so you moved on from that you stayed on yeah so now at this point i'm career and volley at the same time if i have to if i have to think about the next event that really you know plays a part is i remember the first time I saw somebody's bone 
Um, <laughs> the compound like, fracture. Like yeah. F- femoral break or yeah, something. Yeah, a guy was hanging Christmas lights, fell off the ladder, bone thrown through. I remember that pretty pretty decently. Well, have you ever been to have you ever been to an autopsy? I uh, I've seen I've never seen the the process of it. I've seen the end of it. Or, or better question, have you ever smelled an autopsy? Yeah, yes. that's pretty, they're pretty <laughs> bad. Yes. But God. you know, when you see certain things, and you could see these things in a museum, you see human bones in a, in a museum. It's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. But when you see, it's something about seeing a fresh human bone or fresh human fat. Yep. That is right there in front of you. It to me, it was fascinating. Oh yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely. It, it was fascinating to me. It, that's the stuff that never bothered me because I yeah. saw it more as a science experiment. Kev, Kev, you see human fat every day. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at your head. <laughs> oh, that's that's just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> the Abbott and Costello of suffering right here. Oh, God. So you have all these different events over time that seem to be compounding and compounding and compounding. Here's the one that did it. Oh, I don't think I've really spoken about this call very often. I was 19. I had just moved out of my own. I'm already dealing with a bunch of stress, you know, that whole lifestyle change. We get a call for a six-month-old unresponsive. Ah, uh, the peas. Terrible. This call I was hoping was going to be like how most of them are. You know, we'd always hear, we, it's not, I'm not going to say it's, it's extremely rare, but you know, it's somewhat rare to get a call for an infant or child, not Not breathing, breathing. whether, you know, they had a febrile seizure and they stopped breathing for like a quick second because, but most of the time, by the time you show up, they're breathing. Exactly. You're hoping the whole way there too. Exactly. (laughs) It's in the back of your, I hope this kid's breathing. Normally, uh, you know, obviously PD responds balls to the wall for calls like that and being in a small town generally you'd have a status update on a normal call within two three minutes we had we had a status update within a minute that the the child was not breathing by the way the police officers you want to talk about praying i don't know whether you're religious people or not but when you have a pediatric patient because i i've had two of them Mm -hmm. you're praying to whatever god is in your life that EMS and paramedics show up. Yeah. You are yeah. praying because you know that's the next level of care and they have a better shot than you of bringing them back. Yep. You don't, I know with me anywhere, anyway, I didn't care about being a hero. I didn't, all I wanted that kid, I just didn't want that kid to die. Yeah. And it, it, it bothered me. Thankfully at the time I didn't have children because mm-hmm. if I had had children, I think that would have really done some real damage. But you, you show up and now police officers are there. You're the guy. Within the, within the first minute, we had a status update. Kid wasn't breathing. However, that doesn't mean that by the time you actually get there, that the child is breathing again. Because again, we've seen we've seen that before. We've seen that plenty of times before. We were in the back of the truck, grabbing our our, our stuff, legitimately running to the door, and having the the main officer at the time very stone cold face. Like we walking out of the front door, just like, okay, the kid's breathing. You don't need to worry. He wasn't panicking. He wasn't freaking out. Like I said, just very, very stone cold. Like everything was fine. As we're walking up to the house, we go ahead and, I, you know, I see that and I ask him like, okay, so what's going on? And he just looked at me. He said, kid's not breathing. Looked in the house, made it right. They were working on the kid. 
that was just heart-wrenching. I remember my partner at the time grabbed the kid. We weren't we were not in that house for more than 10 seconds. Yeah. Grab the kid, doing compressions as you're running to the rig. You do compressions with the two fingers. Two fingers, yes. yeah. yeah. Yep. That's how small these these children are. Yeah. You don't realize it until it happens. Now we're in the back of the truck, kids on the cot. We're all kind of I don't want to say taking turns doing compressions, but we all were trying to do something else. So whenever somebody was like, take over, take over, take over. We got to the hospital in the fastest amount of time I've ever seen in my life. I'd say standard from where we were to where we were going, probably seven, eight minutes to the hospital. We were there in under th- uh, under five. The parents are with you? The parents are not with us. Because that, that that's yeah. actually... More we, difficult. Yeah, but that's they, what I was saying, too. Going into the house and seeing a baby there not breathing, now you have the family members that are screaming and crying. You know, you got to be at the top of your game, and this I, is distracting you a little I bit. I don't think it really set in, honestly. I mean, so, I, sometimes when you're so fixated on, on the job you have to do, yeah. you shut out all the outside, yeah. you know, the outside noise. You and, deal with the emotions yeah. later. I, yeah. I, I, so I do, there's two parts to the parent story on this. I do remember being in the house, hearing the yelling and the crying. So now we get to the hospital. We're in that room the entire time. Worked on the kid for seriously 30, 45 minutes. I, I don't really remember, but I know it was a substantial amount of time. And we stayed there. And they called it. I remember just just not like crying loudly, but a couple of tears started going down my face. You get the bottom lip quiver. Yeah. It's the toughest thing in the world. And I, I always tell new parents that you thought you knew what worry was. Until you have children. Now you really know what worry is. Those children become, if you're sane enough and you're lucky enough to have children like I have, they are part of you. You see them as part of you. You would do anything. You would give your life up willingly for those children. One of the things that people don't realize is first responders. What makes them true heroes is When you are paralyzed under the fear of losing something that is more important to you than themselves, they're the people who show up to take over. Mm -hmm. And that's what you did right there. You lose the child. Yeah. What were some of the after effects? I don't remember. Here's what happened after they pronounced. As if it wasn't bad enough to go through that shit. I remember walking out of the door that leads into the lobby at the triage desk, the father came in. Father was there. And since we were the first people out of that room, who do you think he's running to? The guy grabs me by my collar and threw me up against a wall and said, what happened? Is he okay? What's going on? All these questions. You're a 19, 20-year-old kid. Exactly. 19, 20 years old with a father who just lost a six-month-old that doesn't know it yet, but you know it. What do you say? Right. And honestly, I don't remember it, well, exactly what I said, but all, oh, excuse me. I do remember actually. I said, they're working on him. They're doing the best that they can. Which is a bold faced lie. However, anybody who thinks that those lies are not necessary, yeah. you are not trained to make a notification. Well, that's like the stock answer though. Yeah, it has to. They're working on him. They're, they're doing, doing everything, everything they, they can. can do. Yep. yep. They're doing, I said, they're doing everything they can right now. That's all I know. He grabbed me and hugged me and cried on me. 
I'm sure you cried back. Nope. Really? Not at all. I remember the ride back very vividly because you could hear a pin drop in that name. Nobody said one word. Not even, even when we got to the, back to the house, everybody just got in their cars and left. We, we had the report done, solidified. I, I, if I remember correctly, somebody said, we'll deal with it later. I think it was a couple of days later. We all went back and reaccounted what happened for debrief. For, for, debriefing. No, not, no not, not a debrief. This was strictly for the report only oh. on how to write the report. The reports are so pivotal in this because, believe it or not, one of the major concerns is, especially losing a child like this, is there's going to be some sort of litigation. Either or some investigation. It's going to be going yeah. to make sure that there was no suspicious circumstances that the kid died. I, I have to back up a little bit into the story on, on when the father grabbed me. When he grabbed me crying, if I'm remembering it correctly, he said, "I killed my my kid. I killed my kid." Which you have to put in a report now. Yeah. Come to find out, it obviously it was accidental, but this is why you do not sleep with kids in your bed. Oh my, mm. this was a Michael Bodden case. Not, not yours, but this, yeah. the, a woman had lost like three or four children. Yeah. And what he found, well, it was on one of those autopsies, you know, HBO specials. Mm -hmm. She kept rolling over on the kid. Yeah. And it, that, this guy rolled over on the kid. We yeah. had one of those in my town. Thank God I wasn't on that. Call. Holy cow. This father is probably ruined. Oh my God. Yeah. He, he's probably ruined. And, yeah. You know, I, I've had my kids in, in the same bed as me. You know, they, you know, when my kid was young, he wouldn't sleep in a crib. I actually held him on top, but I woke up with both my hands asleep because it was, you'll do anything for sleep when, when the kids are young. But something very similar could have happened there mm -hmm. very easily, very yeah. easily. Jeez. You know, it, it's more common than people think. I'm sure. I'm sure. You're, you're through that incident. When did stuff start rearing its head for you with the, the PTS? I'm going to say it was, it had to have been right around that time. If, if I really think about it, it probably was after that first, um, shooting. But what were some of the signs that you started to exhibit? I never had any issues sleeping. Now, all of a sudden I have issues sleeping. Could not fall asleep for the life of me. Went to the doctor. He was like, oh, we could try this. We could try that. I tried a couple of different things. Such as what? Give me one example they had you, they had you try. Was it medication? Yeah, it was medication. Just trying to think of the name Prescribe of it. the shit out of you. That's what they yeah. do. That's yeah. what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think one was Remron, Rem if I remember correctly. Remron. I never had That's that That's to help one. you sleep. It used to give me Sonata. And then I tried Lunesta. Lunesta, I tried. I didn't like it. Xanax. Lunesta was horrible. It just makes you... Well, with me, it, my mouth just tastes like pennies. Well, see, now, there goes our Lunesta you know, sponsorship now. Yeah. Well, Thanks. listen, Thanks, sorry, Bob. Lunesta. I will we'll, we'll cut it out. Don't worry about it. I would love to gladly take down any pharmaceutical company. <laughs> Which we're going to get into. Let's circle yes. back to the pharmaceutical we problems. Will. We will. Then the doctor says, okay, try Ambien. From the first time I tried Ambien, I love that shit. That stuff was what I needed. And, that, and that's scary ass, when you when you like something like that. It put my ass to sleep. How was waking up for you? That was always my problems. I, I do remember the grogginess yeah. when I woke up and being very drained, almost almost hungover in right. a way. Yeah. Because you're not getting that good REM sleep. It's kind of a mask masking type of sleep. Yes. Yep. So you stayed on Ambien then for a while? Yeah. So you're not supposed to be on Ambien for more than two weeks. I wound up with nine years. 
Wow. Even crazier to show you that how how not how not rare of an issue this is. I recently was just speaking with my brother who's been taking Ambien for as long as I can remember because he had a scare the other day. And so I asked him, like, are you still in the Ambien? He's like, yeah, absolutely. He's probably going on 12. I'm surprised it still works for him. Yeah, I know. Because when I was first prescribed it, I was on 10 milligrams. I was going to say, after 12 years, you probably have to up the dosage, Mm -hmm. though. 10 went to 15, 15 went to 20, and then it turned into me taking more than I I should. I remember at one point, I was at four a night. Got to call in that doctor to give you propofol. Oh, my God. So, I... Propofol is the stuff that Michael Jackson died from. Yep. And if you've ever gone under for like, you're too young for a colonoscopy, but you've probably had dozens of them. <laughs> the one. <laughs> by a doctor, Mike. How many of you had by a doctor, not from your friends? One. Okay. Well, other colonoscopy, by friends. You know by friends, I mean? yeah. So that stuff, after I had mine, they give you, I said, what, what do you give me? They're giving you propofol. I'm like, oh, cool. I'll be just like M- MJ. And. That was the best sleep I've ever had Everybody in my life. That. And it's like two or th- I don't even think it's two hours. No, it's not even that long, but it feels yeah. like you slept for days. <laughs> and I, I woke up and I said, how about I don't eat today and we come and do this again tomorrow? And I'm all in. That was the best sleep ever. But you can see how people get addicted to what they believe is restful sleep. Yeah, because exactly. Because ultimately, sleep, if you're not sleeping, you're not living. Yep. So you stayed on Ambien for nine years. Nine fucking years when was it time to get off ambient when i found weed when you found weed and how did you come about finding weed actually we're talking about medical cannabis yes let's this we're not doing anything illegal yep it's medical cannabis but when did you find that like did you somebody just introduce you to it say yes. hey just try this stuff yeah somebody um basically said why don't you why don't you give this a try now this whole time are you still working the, the ems no, this was this was after I retired. You retired from EMS and was well. That, I say retired. I, I mean, I say retired because I know I what you're talking about. Back into it. Yeah. So you you find this new thing now. What was the differences between the Ambien and and the the cannabis? So when I would take Ambien, I would almost turn into like a zombie in a way, and I would always see double vision. That's how I knew that the, that it was working, and would just get insanely hungry for some reason. And I didn't know the munchies happen would, with Ambien. You would literally fall asleep with with food on your chest or, <laughs> or on your plate. That turned into a lifestyle for me. That turned into get on a truck 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or whatever my shift was at the time. Go home, take your Ambien, eat so you can get as much sleep as possible to get back on the truck and do it all again. And that was my life from 2006 to 2014. It becomes a vicious cycle. Yep. Now, do you have any statistical information? Because I know it's out there about people who have had accidental overdoses from Ambien. Not, not that I could even quote off the top of my head. Uh, I'm sure we could pull out Google and find a whole mess of them. But I know it's out there because you hear about it. Yeah, you hear people yeah. sleep driving, sleep walking. Right. We we had a guy in my town. His car. We found it. I mean, my town borders the Meadowlands, and we have a bunch of like marshland out there. And, we found a car like up on a rock one day. We run a plate. It comes back to a guy in town. We go to the guy's house. I'm like, uh, where's your car? So it should be right out front. He was taking Ambien, drove, got in his car, drove it, yep. crashed it up onto a rock. Never remembered it. So prescri- Didn't remember one thing of it. I was just having this conversation this morning in the gym with my son. 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an advocate of any type of illicit drugs or, but I'm also very, very conscious to teach him about prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. So one of the story that I told him this morning, I said, Anna Nicole Smith died with nine prescription drugs in her system. Yep. The Beatles smoked weed and did mushrooms and wrote Sergeant Pepper. Yep. And none of them died from drug overdoses. Damn right. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was all about LSD. That's right. One of them got shot. One of them died of cancer and two of them are still alive. You tell me which one is the more dangerous. Now, mind you, they're both dangerous. I'm not discounting the hard narcotics such as heroin and cocaine and those things, especially without guidance on those. Prescription drugs, how they enter into society now are a million times more dangerous than illicit drugs for the main reason for availability they're socially acceptable and doctors are prescribing these over prescribing them oh yeah by far it, it it's insane it, it, it's disgusting to say that you can go to the emergency room for oh my god my back hurts a little bit yep here oh, you go okay here here's here's 10 percocet i know it's different now but when i had my shoulder surgery i had doctor prescribed three months solid take yeah. them every two hours just kept prescribing them to me yep I mean, I had, and I, I stopped, I got, and it was, it was tough to, to beat, but what's different about the cannabis as opposed to the Ambien? So when it came to Ambien, you know, one of the other side effects I dealt with was memory loss. So there, I, I would wake up the next morning and see like things out of place and be like, I don't remember doing any of that shit. The very first time I ever smoked was the greatest day. I swear. <laughs> I remember it took me a lot of time to work up the courage to do it because I never even tried it as a teenager. And I was, I, I, if I would go to a party or a concert, I remember going to bamboozle once and some kid lit up a joint next to me and I smacked that shit out of his hand and told him that he was a fuck face for doing that because you're it was probably that. Kevin. <laughs> Sorry about that, man. <laughs> I owe you a joint. I've learned. <laughs> yeah, I expect payment for that one. But it's amazing, though, that people think that the, the the medical cannabis people, and I've met many, many different people with medical cannabis cards, they all think that they're grown-up potheads. And it couldn't be further from the truth because there's more straight-laced cannabis users now that would surprise most people. If so, if you so like the other day, I was in line at, at one of our dispensaries, and I love to talk to people and kind of hear, you know, what, what do you do for a living? I spoke to a mechanic, which you know, definitely, if you're a mechanic, you should be smoking on the job. It just makes it more fun. <laughs> um, not not endorsing that at all. Not my mechanic, please. <laughs> you have a lug nut as a door handle. <laughs> um, so I remember one guy was a, was a mechanic. One guy was a pastor. And another, uh, another person was uh, a lawyer. It, you know, you go to a lot of the, so a lot of the events that we go to, it's really interesting to see the people that partake that you really would never expect it. We're talking like high level executives, like CEOs like, and everything. Yeah. yeah. CEOs, professionals, everybody in, in my opinion, smokes in some, whether you're a midnight toker here and there. Or you're somebody who medicates on a daily. And I think now you're that really, with, you're really pulling out the old school Steve Miller. <laughs> Midnight talk. I, I think when, when it comes to the legalization effort where it is now and that it's becoming more socially acceptable, I think that's why we're seeing that because people have been doing this all along, but it's been so taboo to, to say, Hey, yeah, I smoke pot because there's that 
fucking outdated, ridiculous reefer madness. The stigma that comes. Yeah, with the stigma. It. Exactly. That's the, the that's, that's the biggest. The hurdle. marijuana tax act of nineteen thirty nine. Yep. Right where they said uh, it it challenges the virtue of white women. Uh, it's for Mexicans, which are yep. it, it makes black people more um, vicious more, or something like that. I can't remember the verbiage. I, yeah, I did read it. It, it was like aggressive uh, or something. Yeah, like. it's really so, really racist. Yeah, it was founded on, on racial properties. Correct, for, without a doubt. When it all had to do with William Randolph Hearst not wanting to have hemp as a paper replacement. Exactly. Is, so there's there there again's the money in it. Now here's the funny part. So when that came up for a vote in New Jersey, the legalization of marijuana. Do you believe that I voted against it? I didn't vote against it because I think marijuana is dangerous because I really, really don't. Mm -hmm. I voted against it because I was afraid of where the money was going. Because anytime, in my experience, anytime a politician lobbies hard for something, there's something in it for them. Mm. And that's what bothers me. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to say that my Nostradamus powers were correct. Because now what you're seeing is Pfizer starting to get into the cannabis industry. $6.7 billion. Uh, acquisition. And they are going to destroy this and turn it into nothing more than profit. Pfizer, if you're listening, I'll never smoke your shit ever. <laughs> because, and again, that was my problem with this whole thing from the start. Mm-hmm. They'll find a way to put an additive in there to make it addictive and they'll, they're going to ruin it. They're going to ruin it. Everybody, I think, especially people within the cannabis industry that I know, they all pretty much feel the same way. Cannabis is an art. That's why there's photography, you, the, all, all the different colors, the terpene profile, how frosty is that little nug. To grow a plant the right way is a true art form, and I don't understand it. I don't want to learn well, That's it. why I call on Diana, because Diana gave me a whole education on that stuff. It, Diana it, McElroy, yeah. now she, she has her own company called Higher High. I just want to throw out a little plug for her. Dee is one of the, the best people. Code three outreach. Talk yes. to me about that. How did this come from your casually smoking weed in order to subside some of the effects of PTS mm-hmm. to this new business? So the first time I smoked is the house that I still live in. The neighbor behind me is a cop, or I'm told he was a cop. I've, ne- I've actually never met the guy. So I went in the backyard and it took me like three, like three months to work up the courage to actually smoke this. It took a hit and I fucking hated it. It was disgusting. It tasted horrible. It smelled horrible. I got so pissed off and I just went and sat on the couch after one puff. I was going through like a big guitar hero phase at the time. <laughs> Within five minutes, I felt like I was 16. I was laughing my ass off. All the years of depression, anxiety, guilt, questioning decisions I've made was instantly gone. I was genuinely happy and i couldn't stop laughing for (laughs) probably i'd say about 45 minutes just because of how amazing i felt that was the night that i never took ambient again i fell asleep naturally and i found this to truly help me now up to this point where now was this prescription stuff or was this no this was just off the street stuff yeah this was off the street stuff i found that this was going to be my my medication from now from now on because of the fact i wasn't I, I wasn't seeing double vision i just felt relaxed happy it was able to fall asleep naturally yeah i did get the munchies so that didn't really change um, gained a little weight <laughs> by that by that point i was 
the highest weight I've ever been was probably in 2014. I was 320 pounds. Wow. Um, yeah, but your depression will put weight on you too. Well, the combination of overeating on the Ambien and not just wanting to eat whatever the hell it was I wanted. Right. Like I would go up and down one of the main roads and I would actually do something. Beg for Doritos? <laughs> I'm going to say that uh, I used to call it the 37 special because of the road it was on. And I used to go to, I used to go west to east to go back home. And I would get a little something from like five different fast food restaurants and take wow. my Ambien. And like, that was, that was my shit. You know, I, I wound up getting to like 320 pounds. It wasn't until later that I was able to lose some weight kind of naturally. And then I was at 290 steady. Was um, there, was there a white castle in that route there? There was a white wow. castle in that route. There. Done. <laughs> and a checkers. <laughs> I think it was, it was KFC. White Castle, Checkers, and then McDonald's. You forgot Burger King and you have all the five major Burger fast King, food groups. Burger King always gave me acid. <laughs> fast food I groups. I stay away from it. <laughs> but, but, but you're okay with White Castle and, and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> no clue. You so, find this new form of natural. It's much more natural than Ambien. Yeah. So I do have to back up a little bit and say that in 2014 is when I left EMS for, right. for good. And 2015 is when I left fire. I, I, when I left EMS, I jumped into a whole new career. Uh, I jumped into um, a security company, an electronic security company. Yeah. You know, I started really gaining a lot of traction in this new career. It, it, it was amazing. I think it was probably within my second or third year with the company is when I tried it for the first time. It was interesting to see that once I found that medication, that my productivity at work was jumping up. But I Which also, is counterintuitive to the thought of what cannabis does. It, you know, it's yes. sort of sit on the couch, veg out. Yeah. It, it was really interesting because now I feel like since I had my sleep under control, that was helping me. Right. And I was more relaxed and I was able to focus. Never smoke on the clock or anything. Obviously, right. I, I'm only smoking at night. At well, it's the same point. thing with alcohol. You don't drink when you're on... Exactly. It's amazing that the productivity went up. I don't know. Yeah, I don't so, know if there's any studies behind that, but so here's what was interesting, and I always say that the journey to where I am now has always been planned out for me. There's been many instances throughout my life and my career where somebody was watching over me, 100. percent It was after that time that I heard that the New Jersey cannabis me medical cannabis industry was going to be expanding and they were going to allow PTS into the program. That month I got my medical card to make sure that I was going to be, you know, protected legally because up until that point I was very nervous about getting a drug test and all that stuff. Now that I have my medical card, now I could get on a steady regimen. I had a supply that I needed. Good stuff too. Yes. I mean, it's not stuff that Legit you don't, stuff. you don't know what's going into it. And, and that's always one of the strongest arguments for the legalization of marijuana Yep, was because now you're getting stuff that's regulated. Now I know from Diana, when she was working at TerraSend, they watched, the government had camera feeds. They watched from the seed to the actual plant. Yep. Absolutely. 
the whole process in between. And you know what's funny is that's actually what my career is. I I design uh, electronic security systems for dispensaries and cold, and cultivation sites and you know everything in between. And we well, that's kind of convenient. That equipment, yeah, it's kind of convenient. Did you see somebody yeah. going in there and take the plant? No, no, there was nothing there. <laughs> he looked a little like Dan. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, that guy was short. <laughs> he knows how to turn the cameras off, though. You know, yeah, right. does it from his watch. Yeah, so right. that's that's your job. Yes. What we do at Code 3 is any fire department, first aid squad, honestly, even police department, veteran affair, anything. We will go out and speak, and we will never charge anything for that. And then anything that we sell from our apparel line, $2 is donated either to a local volunteer fire department when that account hits a certain threshold, or whoever our partner is at the time, They we will donate it back to their local fire department to show that cannabis gives back, not just with the tax revenue, but that these organizations truly care about their community. They want to not only support them financially, they want to help get our message across to these brave men and women that do everything for us every day. What's your what's the core mission statement of Code 3 Outreach? To work with any first responder or veteran that's, that feels that they are dealing with PTSD educate them properly on what the signs are of that. And we want to get into the medicinal aspects of cannabis because just like me, I, you know, I tried a bunch of different medications. I got hooked on a bunch of different medications and it fucking destroyed my life. I don't remember my twenties because of the, the fog ambient put in my mind. I, you know, I think it's safe to say everybody's 21st birthday is a big fucking deal. Yep. Mine I, wasn't. I remember exactly where I was on my 21st now, birthday. Now, keep in mind. Okay, so 21. I'm living and working in one of New Jersey's biggest tourism areas. I'm a firefighter in town, so I'm with a bunch of guys who love to go out and go drinking. Now, here it is, my 21st birthday. Everybody wants to take me out. I remember going out to the bar for, couldn't have been more than an hour, because all I was thinking of was, I want to get home. I want to take my Ambien. I want to eat. I want to go to sleep. Like that was that's Signs how of a I, true addict. There you go. That's how I spent my, my, it, my fucking 21st birthday. It overtakes your life. It does. Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt that way with the use of cannabis? Never. Where yes. you had to go do it? No. I'm not an expert in cannabis, although Mike and I, we do come across many different people with PTS who use medical cannabis for that relief. And I think maybe one of them went slightly overboard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where it was like a it was like a drug den in his house. Oh man! He went slightly overboard, but he was able to pull himself back. Where it wasn't it wasn't he didn't have the shakes and he didn't have the the coming down. He just decided, okay, I need to start going a little bit more into the light and stop caving up. But that was more of a psychological issue. Yeah. Yeah. It was he was caving up rather than going out and yeah. living his life. Yep. To the best of your knowledge, the the use of cannabis for the treatment of PTS. What are some side effects that are possible? Extreme giggliness. Yeah. <laughs> Stomach aches from laughing so hard. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny. The, uh, it was Weight a couple, gain, diarrhea. A couple of days ago, I was watching TV, saw a commercial for some pharmaceutical crap. And, you know, it's got somebody that's dancing with flowers in the middle of a giant open field. You know, they're saying, this medication does this, this, this. And then you hear that little voice at the bottom is like, oh, you may experience yeah, oh, the, the diarrhea. Diarrhea. The, fa- the fast talkers at the a- bottom. Anal leaking. Anal, well, Olestra, yeah. Olestra, <laughs> Olestra was able to get put into potato chips. 
when the side effect was anal leakage. Yeah. It yep. used to say it on the side of potato chip bags. Yep. Anal leakage. Yep. But people ate it anyway. Exactly. People ate it anyway. Did. Because you're focused on the person in the field. Feeling good. Sprouting flowers. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what they're promoting. And, so, they're, run- and they're running through the field with shit dripping down their pants. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever think that the cannabis industry is going to get there where they can put out a feel-good commercial? Or I don't think they need to. If you go on uh, YouTube, there are a few people that have done that. Yeah. And there's... um. There's this one show on Netflix. I it's about the cannabis it, industry? Yeah. Kathy Bates, I believe, is in it. Really? And it's a, it's all about how she owns a medical dispensary in California. It is really good. Mm-hmm. There's a couple aspects of it I didn't like, but like one of the security guard that worked there was a veteran who never tried cannabis ever, and he wound up trying it, and you see like his journey. But it's really funny at the same time. Nobody's so. going to turn into Walter White from Breaking Bad just because no. maybe they want to start growing a plant. God, that's what we want to make sure of. But that's all st- that's all part of breaking that stigma behind cannabis use. Yeah. You know, people unfortunately, there's the, the hippie with the long hair, who the burnout. Yep. They're not that's not what it is anymore. Well, like the, the Woodstock. They are type. there. They they, yeah. they definitely are there, but what But that's the abuse. You have stoners and you have medicators. <laughs> uh, I like to say and there's nothing wrong with either one of them, but it's a problem when it does start to affect and take over your life and you're not able to be in the driver's seat as you should be. So does cannabis cause diarrhea? Uh, maybe some, maybe some of the munchies I just, that you put I got, in you will cause it. <laughs> I just got to make sure. Cause I, listen, that's a side effect of everything. And I want to make sure that's not a side effect. Nah, I think we're good. <laughs> that would be funny if they had a strain that could cure constipation. <laughs> well, isn't it? It's for, uh, I know they use it for irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. CBG. Yeah. Yeah. Is it CBD or is CBG. it CBG? CBG. Yes. So what, what is CBG? I never heard of CBG. So CBG is cannabigrol. Yeah. That is something that People are using to treat bowel inflammation, Crohn's disease, stuff like that. I have a couple friends who have the Crohn's disease and they were, I, I didn't know what it was called. Only because of my relationship and my friendship with Diana, do I know anything at all about the cannabis industry? Mm-hmm. I just find it intriguing and I find it a business that I think has a huge future. Unless, like I said, one of these large pharmaceutical companies come in there and just ruin everything. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to see Code 3 Outreach go? We were formed back about a year and a half ago. And it wasn't until about a year ago, almost to the day, I'd say, that we really went balls to the wall. We wanted to be in every smoke shop. We want to be in every dispensary. Who else does this with you? Me, myself, and I. Me, you're, there's three people, right? <laughs> you you yeah. and all your friends. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> wow, that's a lot to take on. It is, but you know, I do outsource uh, certain things because I can't draw a stick figure. So I do have a graphic designer that I work with. But I see all over social people. media. You're at every event. You're at every conference. Yes. You're everywhere. Yep. yep. How do you do that while still working a job? Because I'm assuming Code Three Outreach is not sustaining your lifestyle. Here's here here's what I love about my job is both aspects they complement each other because. It takes my love of this plant and knowing that I want these, I want to see New Jersey's medical market be the most amazing in the country with just beautiful flower, good effects, good pricing, all that stuff. Code 3 Outreach, I think it has a very, very strong message Yes, that has to get out there. And it's very useful. Like I know you have helped certain first responders with dosages. Yes. Okay. Because of your experience. Now- 
when you whenever you're you're doing something and first responders we're not allowed to do any of this stuff while we're active we're not allowed to have any of this this relief because that's what cannabis will give you It'll give you yeah. a little bit of relief yes. which is kind of foolish because maybe we could have stayed on a job longer if they would have allowed it but mm-hmm. anyway but then they get out and they say well i heard that cannabis use is is good for pts well okay what do i do and you go to a dispensary and dispensary will tell you certain things on what to do but you seem to help those first responders sort of dial it in. We're here to provide a a higher education. On, <laughs> I see what you did. You there. like that, that pun? That was good. That was good. <laughs> yeah. good so, Play on words. <laughs> so uh, I've actually spoken to um, quite a few of my old partners who said that they've tried it and they, they don't like it because it, it caused it's maybe caused paranoia or yeah. maybe it just didn't work. What it really comes down to is providing this education to say, no, 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 it's not that it didn't work. It's what what cannabinoids are in that specific strain. So it's really difficult to do that when you're getting stuff off the the legacy market, as it's called now, because you really don't know. And somebody could could tell you, hey, this is GMO. And it's maybe it's something completely different. It might be like an OG Kush or something like that. So you don't really know what you're smoking. Well, there's so many different strains out there. It's not like when I was in college and you you you, you went to Joe the Pot Man for a lid. Yep. It's not like that anymore. Yeah. There's a strain for this, 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 and this. Correct. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So like a lot of the dispensaries now, you can go up when you walk in. There's what's called a Bud Bar, and you can actually see the product, look at it, smell it, and see if that's a product that is going to really agree with you and help what you want because different cannabinoids are there for different things. There are certain strains that if I smoke, not really going to help me fall asleep right. and actually could possibly bring up my, my, my panic level a little bit, but it usually goes right back down. But there are some cannabinoids and terpene profiles that might not agree with you. And that might be your turnoff from something that if you were properly educated on, it could be a wonderful healing experience and medication to help maintain your life and give you a better a better way of living. Well, that's that's one of the things that needs to get out there, that certain type of education. Yep. So you just said something that I was foreign to where some may actually keep you up and, and cause a little bit more panic. Yeah. And then there's some that bring you down. Yeah, exactly. Now, what about the smell? I have a problem with the smell of marijuana. I do not like it. I never did. Mm-hmm. Even when I was in college, I hated the smell. I, you tolerate it. Mm-hmm. But then as an well, officer- That was from other people smoking it around you, right? Yeah. Not, not, not no, you. I would never. Exactly. I would never. So, like I was saying before- <laughs> Like you said, going to a concert. Yeah. Well, Contact when I would go to a concert, I'd smell it, and I fucking hated it. Yeah. And- even the first time I smoked, I hated the smell of it. Mm-hmm. But when you can really like smell like the plant itself w- without being burned, you'll smell, you know, is there a little bit of a diesel smell to this? Is there a little bit of a citrus to it? Kerosene. Um, little, <laughs> a little kerosene. <laughs> Does this have a little piney, a little uh, lemonine in there? Yeah, I'm from South um, Jersey. Stop easy with that word, piney. <laughs> hey, I'm from South Jersey, and I'm technically a piney. Yeah. I guess I technically am. You're Forked River? Yeah, it's, it's close. It's close. I, I, I grew mean, up I in Epsecon. I live in the 609 so. area. Yeah, yeah, so do I. I guess where I grew up. <laughs> I'm in a room with a bunch of 609ers. That's right. <laughs> Listen, the Bergen County rich kid over here. Right? Yeah. yeah. But that's that's great that you're getting that word out as far as the education goes. And now, where where can we go if somebody were inclined to to get involved in Code Three outreach in some fashion? How do we, how would we find you? 
So you can uh, check out our website. That is code3outreach.com. Or you can uh, see us on Facebook or Instagram. I always uh, lean a little more toward the Instagram side of things. You know, you can always and just code three outreach on Instagram and Facebook. Yep. yep. Code three well, outreach. What we'll do is we'll put a link to all of those in our show notes and uh, we'll make sure we push everybody over to you. We're coming to the end of this thing here and you've gone through this life of yours and found this, what I believe is your calling is to educate people about the, the benefits of medical cannabis. Yep. But if you had to think back and look at all this different suffering that you've gone through, what do you think it's taught you? It's a really good question. He comes up with a good question once in a while. <laughs> and up until recently, because really addressing my PTS issue isn't something I've done up until probably I'd say about three, two, maybe two, three years ago, roughly. It's taught me that life is precious and it's short and stop worrying about dumb little mundane shit and live your fucking life make the most out of every day you have to life is as much as i hate to say it our days are numbered that everybody's day mine may be more so than yours well you got less time <laughs> and, and you know what honestly that's one of the things that is my biggest trigger when it comes to to pts is is the fact of me passing away the, to know that for so many years i was the person that walked into those scenes at some point is it, it, it what first responder is going to be standing over me thinking the things that i thought looking the way that i did upon the situation here here's something interesting with pts is it has the potential to affect the vagus nerve a couple months ago i've never had to call 911 in my life i was standing in my kitchen and i felt a thump in my chest everything started going black and then everything went white, everything went black again. And I went to go call my girlfriend. The last thing I remember was looking for her name and then all the audio cut out and I couldn't hear anything. And I woke up slumped over and I had to call 911 and the EMS crew that took me to the hospital, I was having a panic attack in the back of that because that triggered off my PTS to know, oh my God, I'm in this other situation that I was in your seat for so long and now I'm here. Now the roles are reversed. Yeah. But we're always trying to protect our legacy. Yep. And my friend, I think your legacy is your education that Thank you're you. giving right now. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for coming in and sitting down with us and talking about the suffering of Code 3 Outreach. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, listen, it was, it was enlightening. I mean, I learned a lot from it. And Good. You learned? It's amazing. <laughs> what, what was your name again? <laughs> <laughs> now you sound like me. <laughs> Wait a minute. Um. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast, the Suffering of Code 3 Outreach with Daniel Jensen. And let's talk about all the stuff that we learned today. It's PTS. Let's drop the D and change the stigma. A life of service is something that you're born into. Cannabis does not cause diarrhea. The true benefits of cannabis come from education. But most importantly, life is short and precious. Just go out and live your life. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering Code 3 Outreach. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Suffering Podcast.